There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On today's episode, we'll review Australia's Champions Trophy campaign, preview the two semifinals, and play play it or leave it. Sam Ferris here, and I'm joined today by former News Limited Chief Cricket Writer Malcolm Conn. Hello, Mal. It's lucky we don't get paid on our predictions because we'd be out of a job. Well, yes, we would, wouldn't we? We'd be looking for something yeah, quick smart, unfortunately. <laughs> yep. It was extraordinary. We came in here thinking that uh, India and South Africa would progress with a breeze through uh, through Group B into the semifinals. But sure enough, there were three upsets in a row. Both those teams getting defeated. And then Bangladesh pulling the wool over the New Zealand, pardon the pun. Yes, that's right. It can happen in the shorter forms, obviously, but there's rain around as well. But um, teams had the opportunity of at least parts of three games. And... Uh, Bangladesh has got on them. Congratulations. All right, we're going to start with Australia's early exit from the Champions Trophy, knocked out by their Ashes arch rivals, England, and what turned out to be an ultimate beatdown, Mal, in Birmingham. Uh, Australia's total of 277 was made to look about 100 runs short as Ben Stokes and Owen Morgan scored at will to be 40 runs ahead of the DLS target when rain stopped the match. Mal, it was a must-win game for the Aussies. Uh, they started well with both bat and ball but ultimately were outclassed. Uh, yes, never got enough. I mean, England, the way they bat, we've discussed it previously. The one thing we did get right, as we said, you've got to make well over 300 to be competitive against England, and that was the case again. Uh, and uh, very disappointed by the Australians. They were set up well. I think they were one for 136 at some stage, and mm. Aaron Finch was going well. Steve Smith was going well in a 50-over game. I think they felt the pressure of, of needing to score more quickly, knowing that um, a run of ball wasn't going to be enough. And so... They had pre, three pretty soft dismissals in a row, which really hurt mm. them, unfortunately. And then uh, who would have thought that a, uh, an English wrist spinner was going to run through the Australians? Yeah. But uh, uh, Rashid certainly did the business there in the middle and lower order and, and made a real mess of it. So 277, never enough. Uh, if you don't get 300 against England, you're not in the game. So I would have thought that England, the way they were batting, might have chased down 330, 340. Mm. Who knows? But uh, no, a, a disappointing performance all round and, and, uh, and one that I think they uh, should be re- reflect on in some depth. All right. Well, we're going to reflect on it, Mal. We're going to find out where it all went wrong. First, um, they were very, very unlucky with the weather, weren't they? One of their warm-up games was washed out, as were two of their group games. And in the elimination match against England, rain stopped play. Uh, in fact, Australia had England three for 35 when the heavens opened uh, and completely robbed them of any momentum. So I think, uh, I don't know what's going on over there, Mal. They're smashing mir- mirrors or walking under ladders or they were seeing black cats. But whatever which way they were doing it, there was just uh, the unlucky fortunes followed them the whole way through. Well, one of Alan Border's favourite sayings was, uh, you'd hit a submerged log. Well, I don't think you could have been more (laughs) submerged than the Australians' log in that tournament, unfortunately. So, yes, it did uh, hurt them with momentum. It did hurt them with uh, time in the middle. Uh, there's no question when you looked at them play, they looked rusty. I mean, I'm from the the school of... uh, both Steve Smith and Darren Lehman, who said in their press conferences afterwards, quite rightly, there are no excuses. Uh, but it certainly does make it hard with your preparation. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And the preparation, apart from that those, that washed-out game against Pakistan, probably can't be too faulted. Uh, they got everything they were after. But the players were pulled from all corners of the globe. Nine players came from the IPL, with four of those guys being there since the India Test Series. Two players were coming back from injury. Two players had no cricket since the India Test Series. And the final two, James Pattinson and John Hastings, 
have been playing in England. Like you said, Mal, you're, the, uh, you're from the school of no excuses. But do you think that those factors, pulling players from all over the world, bringing them together for this tournament, played against them? Um, I don't think it helped, and particularly the guys that have been for the long haul through India. Uh, I, I think that uh, something like this, there has to be a review of preparation. That yep. uh, as much as they wanted, they got, but I'm not sure if they were together for long enough or they played enough cricket in English conditions. Uh, I would have liked to have seen what England did. They brought um, some of their better players or best players, including Stokes, home, yep. away, home from the IPL, uh, put them into camp. I think that that's something that the Australians probably should have looked at, was to have a, a camp in England. Um, if you have to miss a week or two of the IPL, well, bad luck, you're playing for your country. Yep. I think that um, that should be paramount. And so uh, I feel that uh, if they'd had more time, and look, it's no surprise that it rains in England. I mean, if you go back at the beginning of summer in England uh, over the... The year's June has been terrible. It, there's been flash flooding, thunderstorms, you name it, England has at that time of year. Yep. And it's not difficult to find if you actually go through the archives. So I think that people have to be aware of that. And um, I, I think they have to, there has to be uh, no excuses and no compromises. If, the, if it means the IPL has to take a hit in terms of the amount of time that they can spend there, well, that's life. The, the, everyone is committed to... Australia winning tournaments, particularly major tournaments, and, and that should be the total focus. It's funny, the IPL seems to have just really blacked out a hole in the schedule and I know that uh, other cricket boards are, are pretty careful not to take their players at New Zealand. They played a tri-series against Bangladesh and Ireland and they left their international players in the IPL. Uh, England pulled them out because they had a, that series against South Africa, but maybe we should start looking at the IPL as not the, the golden ticket as it is and really make it known that the players are there because of their international performances. Well, I think in something like this, given that we know so far ahead when tournaments are, is there any reason why Australia couldn't have been part of a triangular series in England leading up to the tournament? Played, you know, three, four or five one-day games uh, to get into Nick because certainly England were in great Nick. Yeah. Yep. Uh, team selection, Mal, uh, I guess in hindsight, that's the only way you can really judge if a team was picked correctly or incorrectly. Um, but uh, Australia's eleven probably wasn't quite right. Uh, former players, Shane Warne, Michael Clark, Reed Ponting, uh, they've all said that uh, Moses Enriquez, very quality player, but probably not the second drop that the Australians were after. Uh, Johnny Hastings, who a lot of people had talked up prior to the tournament and had been playing over there, uh, he only got one match. Mitchell Stark looked a little bit underdone coming back from injury. Uh, and Chris Lynn, who has a lot of raps on him and he's such a master blaster, he sat on the sidelines the entire tournament. So as we said, it's a bit difficult to judge down here in Australia, Mal, but um, if the selectors had their time again, do you reckon they'd make some changes? Well, I think they would now, and uh, it's a shame about Moses because there's no idea, no uh, doubt at all that he's a quality player, yep. and certainly last season he had, a, he had a breakout season with the bat, was outstanding, uh, and certainly if you'd ever seen him play in the Big Bash, you know that he can really take a game down, and, and we he, saw that in the semi-final. And I think in the last three years in the Matador Cup, if they're backing on uh, domestic form, he's averaged over 50 in those last three seasons. Well, that's right. So he, he does everything to suggest that he should make it at international level, but he hasn't shown it. Mm. He's 30 now, so I'm not sure how many more chances he'll get. But certainly I can see why they did it. He's a, he's a quality cricketer, but he just had to step up. And it was just a shame in that last game when he'd, he'd hit three boundaries, he really looked set, and then he just lost all of his shape when he went to play the big shot yep. off Rashid and just dragged a, a simple catch to mid on when he should have been sort of going down the ground. So uh, he'll be ruining that opportunity if he'd got in and, and made an impression there. It, it could have been significant given that he is a handy bowler uh, and he had been playing in England, which was also to his advantage. But uh, that was disappointing. It was probably the major talking point. And, and Chris Lynn, um, maybe he's a guy in a one-day game that you'd be looking more at, uh, at five or six. Okay. Uh, rather than sort of four to build an innings around. He's someone a bit more of a master blaster uh, to play those sort of big 
big bash shots. Uh, I don't think that there's really a lot more that they could have done. Hastings, I agree. I think Hastings, who had been playing in England as well, probably would have been worth a bit more of a shot. But it really wasn't after the first game when Hastings did play and played yep. pretty well. It wasn't their bowling so much, I thought, as their batting. Yeah. Um, that was the problem. They would have beaten. They, they would have lost badly to New Zealand. They would have beaten Bangladesh easily. Uh, that squares off. They had to play well against England. They didn't play well against England, and it was their batting that let them down. Mal, it must be said that Australia, across all formats, have been pretty inconsistent since that last World Cup in 2015. We'll start with the victories. Uh, they've beat England 3-2 in an ODI series in the UK. They came back to Australia and beat New Zealand in the West Indies uh, without dropping a test match. Then they beat New Zealand over in New Zealand and they became the world number one test-ranked team. Then they went to Sri Lanka. They beat them in the ODI and T20 series there. They came back to Australia, beat Pakistan at home, and then they uh, beat them in the one-days as well. However, on the other hand, they lost the Ashes in England. They were whitewashed in Sri Lanka, three tests to zip. They whitewashed in a, in a T20 series against India. They lost a home test series to South Africa, a test series in India, albeit a uh, very competitive series. And they failed to reach the semifinals of the uh, 2016 World T20, the Champions Trophy. They've lost the Chapel Hadley series, a home T20 series against Sri Lanka, and uh, 5-0 uh, a whitewash against the Proteas over there prior to last summer. What I read out of that is, First of all, it's extremely difficult to be consistent in international cricket, especially consistently excellent. It's tough winning away from home. A lot of those losses have come away from home. And that I don't think that there is really one standout team in the world at the moment. And uh, I don't think the best teams are all that great and the bad teams are all that bad. No, well, that's right. I mean, if we looked at uh, recent rankings, you would have seen South Africa ranked as, uh, as number one. Yep. And yet... Um, They've been off the boil. They were off the boil in England during that one-day series. They've been off the boil again in this tournament. So it is you know, very much a, a sort of on-the-day or on-the-month sort yeah. of scenario. Uh, I think we shouldn't hold too much store, I don't think, with some of Australia's one-day results, particularly away. That 5-0 whitewash against South Africa in South Africa was a very experimental bowling attack yep. and, and was murdered accordingly. I think that... Uh, it's one of those things where you've got to try and find a balance between giving players opportunity, resting your senior players and putting out a competitive team. And unless you've got an absolute bunch of superstars, you can't really do that. The, 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 the competition uh, is too tough and yeah. the depth falls away quickly. So my concern is that too often you, you'll get an Australian team playing in one-day cricket um, that isn't the best team. And I can understand that players need resting and players need rotating. But also you'd like to keep up uh, for the uh, not only the, the good of Australian cricket but also for the fans and yeah. either at home or at the ground that you'll put on uh, as good a uh, team as you can at any given time given the, the relative workloads of players. So... Uh, unless you've got your absolute top team out there and firing, it is very hard to win anywhere. It'd be interesting to see how the results of the next two years go because, like you said, there's a lot of time for experiment, but now they're going to really build up for that 2019 World Cup in England and I guess the Ashes over there as well. I'm sure these are all big learning steps over there playing in England because Australia have had a poor record over there practically since 2001 when they last won the Ashes over there. It'd be interesting to see the results go the next two years because I'm pretty sure they'll start planning the, the planning for the 2019 World Cup starts now and we'll hopefully see the best team on the paddock more often than not. Well, I think we saw that with this tournament. I think if you look at the players in this tournament, I think that that, that uh, the selectors would have thought this is, this is the best group that they could put together. And, and if you look through them, they should all be around in two years' time yep. to be able to 
to, to sort of gel as a unit. Um, they just need momentum, they need some time together. Uh, the 2020 results that you mentioned were quite interesting, aren't they? Because the Australian players who make up that 2020 international team actually don't play 2020 cricket at home in the, no. in, in the Big Bash. Yeah. They play all their 2020 cricket domestically in the IPL, which means when it's uh, <laughs> the World T20s in India, you'd think that you'd actually go all right. So it's a bit of a convoluted process where your best players in the Big Bash are then circumvented by players who hardly play any 2020 cricket in Australia. But I just, again, i just got to reinforce the point that as much as you can, you've got to be trying to pick your best players and try to get some sort of continuity in the team. And certainly with the, the World Cup now looming in the next couple of years, that they'll have to start looking at that. Is that the nature of the beast? Now, the Australia, absolutely one of the best teams in the world. But the way the schedule is, the way the tournaments are set up, the IPL, the different instruments of, of different boards and and T20 leagues around the world that fans are going to just have to start copying some of these results that it is going to be they are going to be consistent they are going to be trialing players that they might not always have the best team out in the paddock but in the long run it'll be good for them that you know it's it's tough to win every game and test cricket is still the number one they're never going to pick a, a B team or rest anybody from a test match but these one day tournaments and T20 tournaments might have to suffer a few losses and that's what's happening and that's what will continue to happen it just you can't play as much cricket as the guys play, particularly the fast bowlers, and yep. expect to be able to play at all. Uh, it's an interesting scenario. If you look at American sports, um, particularly, say, baseball, uh, they play 162 games a year. Well, it's very rare that you'll see the same team on the park two games oh, in a row. Possible, yeah. So uh, there's a rotation in baseball that's just accepted because of the amount that they play, and that's the sort of thing that we have to accept to a point on Australian cricket if it's done properly and if it's not sort of gouging the team... Uh, I think it's also, it also has an exciting factor to it as well. When you've got a young player coming in, yep. as long as it's not wholesale changes all the time, if a young player's earned his stripes and is coming in because a senior player is rested, then there's quite a bit of excitement around that young player. Marcus Stoinis is a good example yeah. of that in New Zealand. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Fired off that amazing 100 when all looked lost. And all of a sudden, I mean, he, he didn't figure in this tournament and he had has had his injury worries. But all of a sudden, there's another option for you. You know, a guy who can stand up in the, in the one-day game. So so that is the flip side of not putting your best team on the park. If it's done properly and you're nurturing players through, that can be quite exciting. All right, Mal. Let's look at the four semifinalists and the two semifinals. Now, the first semi-final will be played on Wednesday in Cardiff where England and Pakistan meet. Uh, England have been imperious and perfect so far in the tournament. Uh, they beat Bangladesh by eight wickets, New Zealand by 87 runs, and then the Aussies by 40 runs with the DLS method coming into play there. Their batting looks incredibly strong through Hales, Root, Morgan and Stokes where their bowling has been held up by uh, Mark Wood with four wickets and uh, well, big wickets and, and Adil Rashid spinning his way in there playing the last couple of games. England were tournament favourites. Mal, what about them has impressed you the most? I just love the way they approach the game. I thought Owen Morgan just set the tone in that match against Australia when England were three for 35 and really struggling. And there was none of this, oh, let's nudge it around for a while and see how we go when they came back after the rain break. He was into it straight away. Yeah. He was down the wicket after Hazelwood. He was smacking him through the covers. He was just going to take the game on. It was death or glory as far as he was concerned. And they've got a good enough side to do that. I mean, that three for 35, they still they still had him, still had Stokes. Yeah. And uh, they backed down a bit with uh, uh, guys like... Um, Butler and Ali. Yeah, and, yeah. Mar and Ali, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So so they're a dangerous team who play the right way. They take the game on. You need a lot of runs to beat them. 
isn't it funny that a lot of people were saying that England have copied New Zealand's blueprint from the 2015 World Cup? Well, Darren Lehman made it pretty clear that uh, he feels as though they've copied Australia's World Cup uh, uh, plans because they actually won the tournament and not the Kiwis. Uh, and he made it pretty clear that he said, uh, well, we're not going to start copying them until they win a World Cup. So a uh, bit of uh, Ashes spice. I think that was, might have been the last question he answered while he was over there, but Buff always good to give a quote. Yeah, and I think the, the thing about that is if you're playing with confidence and you've got confidence in your teammates to know that um, if you play the percentages and, and go after the bowling and get out, that there's someone's going to come in behind you that's going to do the same thing. So I think the Australians probably felt a bit different. Steve Smith was trying to build an innings yep. uh, to try and hold things together, whereas the, the, the Palmers are on the top of their game and felt fantastic and were just going out and hitting the ball. I've got to talk about Ben Stokes, Mal. Uh, you said in the first podcast we've done, uh, he reminded you of Ian Botham. It was every bit beefy against the Australians. He made a spectacular 100. Shane Warne said it looked like he was having a net out there and it's hard to argue with him the way he was just absolutely dismantling the bowling attack. Uh, isn't it amazing a, a guy that was two years ago, definitely not a fringe selection, but uh, an all-rounder with a lot of promise, but now he's just an absolute superstar and nobody's hitting him better. No, that's right. He's a quality cricketer. Um, he could, uh, at his best, he could hold his own as a bowler or a batsman. And that is the, the true quality of an all-rounder. You're not sort of filling in in one role. You're actually doing both of them properly. And, and it just gives you so many options. I thought he actually bowled pretty modestly in that game. He bowled a few wides. He yep. was a bit short. And I thought, oh, gee, he's, he's having a pretty ordinary game, isn't he? Well, he certainly turned that around. When you're an all-rounder, <laughs> you can, it can be pretty hard to get you out of the game. And he played magnificently. And again, in the, in the circumstances, I mean, they were up against it, England. And they just went and played their natural game. And, uh, it just shows how quickly he can take a game away from you. He's got a bit of uh, bit of Lara about him, bit of Gilchrist the way he can play. And I know both sides coming into that match and after the match have said that it's not going to have any bearing on the Ashes next summer. But don't you get the feeling that England hold absolutely no fear against the Australians the way they were playing? I don't know if it'll translate into the Test format under Joe Root, but at the moment they're just playing with so much freedom and they're fearless. Well, they are. I agree. I think the circumstances will be different. You'll be taking Owen Morgan out of that team and you'll be putting Cook in. He'll be playing the percentages. It'll be a long game. There'll be a lot more short-pitch bowling uh, on harder Australian wickets, which uh, would hopefully make a difference. But they will take a lot of confidence out of the way they've played in this tournament and, and the way they've played against the Australians and the Australian fast bowlers. So um, and the Australians will really need to get that early advantage at the Gabba to really make it count. Otherwise, it, you, know, you would like to think that... Uh, uh, they'll hang on to England because they might just gallop away. I know it's a different format, but the way that the England have been playing, is Owen Morgan a chance of getting into that in that Test team? I know Joe Root hasn't captained a Test match yet, and who knows, he might be brilliant at it. But the, just the feeling and the vibe around this England team, uh, wouldn't you want that to carry on to the Red Ball game? Like, Imagine Morgan out there, England playing that aggressive cricket. A lot of those players are playing in the, the one-day team going to play in that Test team. And you throw a guy like Broad in there, it'd be very tempting to, to try and carry that winning feeling across. You'd love it if you were uh, if you were going well and you had um, Morgan coming in at number six just to put the icing on the cake, wouldn't yeah, you? You could yeah. really take the bowling on. I think, I think if it was uh, if it was true uh, true wickets and he was hitting through the ball, then it'd be pretty entertaining. Yep. All right. Now they're going to play Pakistan, Mal, and Pakistan have been classic. Pakistan. They opened the tournament with a woeful display against India. They lost by 124 runs. They bounced back with an upset win over South Africa by 19 runs, and then uh, they probably should have lost against Sri Lanka, but they fought back and won by three wickets. Uh, Mal, if that's not classic Pakistan, I don't know what is. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, who would have picked it? They were either um, brilliant or diabolical. Uh, I've always like their bowling. I thought their bowling 
uh, could create problems in the right circumstances. Although Haria has has gone home, um, but uh, their batting is very thin, and it shows by the fact that uh, they've still made virtually no runs between them. But they've done enough to get into the semi-finals. Well, that's right. Hassan Ali has been the star of the ball. He's taken seven wickets in three matches, but incredibly. No Pakistan batsman has made 100 runs total in the tournament. Alza Ali is the best with 93. So it's been a real team effort. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they have lost a couple of experienced players uh, going into this tournament. So I thought it was always going to be difficult for them. And uh, it just shows what they're capable of. Now, we rate them off earlier, much to our uh, dismay. But are we going to give them a chance against England? England are red hot. Pakistan, they're a coin toss kind of team. What do you reckon? Well, Pakistan are a sort of one out of ten, and just uh, in this circumstance, <laughs> aren't they? And just so often that one comes up, doesn't it? But yeah. uh, I think I'll go the percentages and go with England. All right, the second semi-final sees an all-Asian affair when India and Bangladesh square off at Edgbaston. Let's start with the defending champions. They, as we said, beat Pakistan by 124 runs to open their campaign. Then they were stunned by Sri Lanka to lose by seven wickets. Their tournament life was on the line against the Proteas, and they put in a near-perfect performance to wipe them out. The world number one team by eight wickets. Now, the Sri Lanka upset aside, uh, India have been absolutely wonderful. They have, and, and the thing that impressed me most about South Africa was that there was their bowling that did the job, yeah. that, that kept them to 191. So they're always going to win chasing that score and did it very easily in the end. But I would have thought that India's strength by far was their batting and they'll get big totals or chase down big totals. But to be able to keep um, a side that's very well credentialed, if, even though they have been struggling of late, to 191 in those circumstances... Uh, with a, a solid bowling attack, but not a spectacular bowling attack, was a, it was a really good effort and just showed what an all-round game that India does possess. Mal, back when you first started covering one-day cricket, 191, that wouldn't have been a, a total write-off total, would it? That would have been somewhat competitive? Not a total write-off. 200, you you're always thought you are in the game. 220 was considered a reasonable score, so things have changed a bit. Isn't it amazing now that 300 is almost a benchmark? You don't get 300, England uh, chased down 278, well, they're going to get there, but... Australia's 277. Everyone thought that was 30 or 40 runs short. You know, 191, everyone just thought, well, that's going to, it's over. Game's over. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Well, 277, I thought uh, even when England were three for 35, it was going to take something special from the Australians to beat them in, in those yeah. circumstances. Shikha Darwin now has been an absolute run machine at the top of the order. He's got 271 runs next to his name in three innings with a century in 250s. He was the player of the tournament in 2013. And it's like he's never left. He's been unbelievable. Well, he has. And particularly impressive in England rather than in India. I mean, it's interesting that the ball hasn't swung. And yeah. it certainly helped it, uh, India's cause. Uh, and it's interesting. I was talking to Elise Perry before she left for the Women's World Cup, just why the ball hasn't swung. And she sort of said, well, England has sort of two types of, of, of overcast weather. It's either overcast and humid and the ball does swing or it's over overcast and quite cold and the ball will seem but it doesn't swing. So... Right. She seems to think it's more of a, of a winter overcast than a summer overcast where you get the, the humid conditions helping the ball to hoop around. So regardless of that, India have, uh, have lived up to their uh, standing as a, as a quality batting unit. And uh, you're right, Darwin, like, he's uh, done the business for them every time. You get an opener playing well in a, in a white ball tournament and it really sets you up. Absolutely. India brought in Ravi Ashman into the 11 for the Proteus Clash. I reckon that brings a real balance to that team. If it wasn't balanced, it's, it's super balanced now, I guess. It's completely level. Mel, he's going to have an impact, you would think, going forward now that these wickets have been played on a few times. Well, you would. Uh, he's a quality spinner and a handy all-round cricketer. We know he can bat as well. So I just think that, that, that his inclusion just completely tops them off. Yep. All right. Their opponents, Bangladesh, they started with a heavy loss to England. 
and then uh, they were facing f- certain defeat against Australia, but the rain came and saved them. And when it mattered, they beat New Zealand by five wickets. Uh, Mel, that win against the Black Caps was built off the back of a stunning 224-run stand between Shaki Balasan and Mamadoula. It didn't look like those two were going to get out until Shaki missed a wild slog with victory in sight. Extremely impressive by the Tigers, Mel. Great effort. And I, th- I thought the, the, the best part of... Uh, well, not the best part, I suppose, but the most significant part of that performance was the fact that they kept New Zealand at 268. Again, yeah, a score sub-300. Sub-300, and... Uh, New Zealand have got a pretty good batting lineup, So for Bangladesh to do that, they were always in the game and, and they just showed that uh, if you can get a partnership together chasing what these days is a relatively modest score, you're always a chance. And good luck, good luck to them. They played with spirit. It's interesting that in this tournament, the only team that New Zealand's played uh, any good against is actually Australia. They dominated Australia in that yeah. game until it got washed out. So I just think that that... And, and New Zealand still didn't go through. Bangladesh beat them. So I, I think that reflects how far off the pace Australia were to be dominated by New Zealand yeah. in, in a, a tournament where that was New Zealand's only decent game. Yeah. But Bangladesh uh, now ranked, I think, sixth in the world in one-day cricket, yep. uh, pushed the West Indies out of the top eight to go into this tournament. So certainly they're... Uh, they're uh, don't look a particularly credentialed side, but um, they keep doing the business. Well, I reckon so often in sports that we look at teams on paper and think that's where the game is won, but I would say that means nothing when you come up against a determined side that wants it more. We saw it with Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and now definitely with Bangladesh. When a team's got that sort of spirit and that must-win attitude, they're so hard to stop. Well, it is, and we're going to have two teams with that. We're going to see uh, both uh, India and Bangladesh going with that sort of belief and you would think that uh, India, given the superior quality of its cricket, will come out on top. But, gee, they want to be on their game the way Bangladesh have uh, shaped up in a couple of their matches. And we said prior to the tournament that we thought that Bangladesh would take a big scalp in this tournament. Uh, New Zealand, I guess they're a pretty big scalp World Cup finalists, but can they go one bigger and knock, knock out uh, their bigger brothers in India? Well, they can. I mean, again, that's probably not like the the one in ten of uh, Pakistan (laughs) v England, but I think they're probably a one in eight. Right. Uh, So you wouldn't, in all in all honesty, give them much of a chance in a big game like that. But they play with spirit and they've got some quality cricketers. So you know, you never completely write them off. Now we've revealed the exclusive winners. They're locked in. We're going to come back and play. Play it or leave it. Mount play it or leave it time. This is pretty much rate it or hate it. We've given it a bit of a rebrand, refresh. We've given it a bit of a cricket touch as well. Okay, your first ball. A team will win the toss and elect to bat in the semi-finals and the final. Uh, 12 matches so far in the Champions Trophy. Team winning the toss has elected to field or bowl eight times. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, there's no question that England prefer to chase. Yep. And they India too. India too, that's right. They'll back their bowlers to, to, uh, to set up a target that... Uh, may look big, 300, but back themselves to no matter what the target is to get it. Um, both have steady rather than spectacular bowling attacks, but but good enough to do the job. And their batting is uh, is um, really dominant and and dynamic. So that if you do have to put the foot down, you can. And and it also sets you up that you know that um, if if you're chasing 300. Well, a run of ball these days with 2020 cricket is nothing. So it, it, it's, it's pressure free. I mean, Owen Morgan, he's the yeah. captain of that side, three for 35 uh, against Australia, and he just came out and played and really took the game on. Why do you think the changes, the change about chasing, has come into 
you know, such a fad almost. Back in the day, it was always bat first. You'd win the toss 10 times, bat nine times, and think about bowling the 10th time and bat anyway. Uh, now, I think teams must just enjoy knowing what they've got to get. There's a lot of unknowns batting first. They don't know the pitch is going to play, the, the ball's going to swing, what a good score is. But I guess if they're batting second, they know how fast they've got to score. They know what the pitch is going to play like a little bit better, I suppose. And I guess it gives them only one way to win. They've just got to get the title. I think that's a couple of factors in this too. I think playing in England, particularly in early uh, summer in June, where it is quite wet traditionally, uh, and you're starting games, day games, which a lot of them have been at uh, 10.30 in the morning, there's yep. always a chance it's going to do something. So it's always going to get – the pitch will get better as the day goes on. Yep. And then you'll be able to sort of, when it's your turn to bat, you'll think you'll get the best of the conditions. So the ball, I think we saw when the Australians played against England, I think that some of them are probably out of nick, but also I think it was holding up a bit mm. and they weren't playing as freely as they could. I think the other thing we saw with the Australians was, as we touched on earlier, you're always under pressure because you're not sure how much is enough. So you probably go harder than you need to. Finch and Smith, I doubt would have, pl- would have played those shots if they were chasing 300. Yeah. They would have batted deep, set it up, and then picked it off at the end with wickets in hand rather than trying to force the game when there was still a lot of overs to go. I mean, they could have got well over 300 Australia if they just continued to play and left wickets in hand and then, and then gone hard at the end. And I guess the, the wet weather would have to play a factor as well because the, the, the DLS target, you know what you need after so many overs. It's easy to either go hard for an over or conserve wickets. That probably comes into it as well. All right, your second ball, Mal. Uh, ben Stokes, he's already scored 100 in the tournament. Ben Stokes to score another century. It's a big ask, isn't it, when you're batting at five in a, in a strong batting lineup and uh, you've got two games to go. So... Uh, he's good enough to do it. I mean, the, the way he batted against Australia, you wonder how he doesn't do it every time. But uh, I just think that uh, circumstances might inspire against him. So I'd be surprised if he did in terms of having the time to do it. But he's certainly good enough to do it. So you're thinking about playing that one, but you're going to leave it? I'm letting it's that one go. It's tempting you? Yeah, no, I'll let it go. You. Okay, well, here we go. Right off the back of that one, the third ball, a Pakistan batsman to score a century. And the arms are well up over the shoulders <laughs> there. I'm letting that one go through. Uh, completely untouched. I, I think that the way they've played, if they can scramble together a few half centuries and get a half decent score, that they will have done well. Fourth ball. India will cause at least two runouts in the semi final against Bangladesh. They've created five runout chances so far in the tournament, the best of any team. And that is remarkable, isn't it? And when you think back of the Indian teams of a generation ago, the, the, you all often did think about their fielding, but how bad it was. Yeah. They were just so unathletic. Uh, and it, their catching was poor, their fielding was poor, but the, these modern teams with the, the the strength and conditioning and the fielding and the extra work that's uh, put into them, the modern-day players are just fantastic, and they build their games around it, and uh, it's the pressure. They put pressure on you whether they bat, bowl, or field. Young team, I think uh, Ricky Ponting said that uh, Ravindra Jadeja has the best arm he's seen of any cricketer ever, so that's a big rap from Ricky Ponting. That is amazing. Yeah. Fifth ball, we've seen, uh, have we seen the last of Lassith Malinga Mal in international cricket? He's 33, his pace was considerably down, he was gingerly running in during the closer stages of the match against Pakistan is the last time we've seen the, the slinger Malinga on the international stage. Oh, he still might play 2020 cricket for Sri Lanka. It wouldn't surprise me if he sort of uh, literally sort of uh, limped along. But he has had knee problems or one particular knee that's been causing him problems for, for quite some time. That's yep. why he pulled out of test cricket some time ago. Uh, and he's been a you know, terrific campaigner and got, got the best out of himself. Uh, and still a, a very handy bowler in uh, Big Bash or the domestic tournaments, although he, doesn't, he lacks the sting that he used to have with that... that 
dynamic Yorker. Um, so, look, he, he may limp on in 2020 cricket, but uh, I think that yeah, if the end hasn't come, it's close. What a career he's had, Mal. I mean, in his day, in his prime, there was no more threatening bowler in white ball cricket than Lasith Malinga. Fantastic. I remember seeing him up in Darwin when Australia played uh, Sri Lanka up there oh, a dozen years ago now, I think, and uh, the pocket rocket, no one had seen much of him, and there's yep. this guy who's running in and just about knocking the umpire's hat off every time he bowled, <laughs> and it was, took, took a bit of getting used to. The players didn't know quite where the ball was coming from, so no, he's been a, a real character and a very dangerous player and been very good for international cricket, there's no question. Your last ball, Mal. Uh, the winners of every major global trophy to be presented with those white jackets that the Champions Trophy victors receive. Have you seen those, these white blazers? I think Richie Benno, there's 11 or 12 Richie Benno's up there on the on the podium because they're all wearing the beige, the white, the off-white. Uh, what do you think that should be a customary for all the winners of global tournaments? Just what an international cricketer needs, isn't it? <laughs> Another item of clothing that, that probably doesn't even make it to the bottom of the wardrobe. No. The amount of gear that players seem to clear out after any given tournament. I wonder if... Uh, You'll see a few of the uh, the housemaids and uh, <laughs> and uh, concierge wearing them in team hotels, uh, particularly across the subcontinent. So I don't think oh, look, I, I know that uh, you know the uh, the US Masters uh, they love the green jacket <laughs> and that looks a bit strange too, but it does have a lot of tradition to it. But no, I, give them a medal. Uh, you can tuck it away somewhere, and uh, uh, it's easier to pack. and uh, And you might pull it out one day and think, oh, that's right, I went okay there. But I, I guarantee you, you won't be pulling that jacket out again. That's it for today's episode. We'll be back next week to review the entire tournament. Mal, you'll be back? Absolutely. Brilliant. Until next week, head to cricket.com.au for all your news, scores and video on the ICC Champions Trophy and the upcoming Women's World Cup. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.